Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and remain standing for the reading of God's Word. 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? And the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul, And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord lord the king commands, his servant will, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we pray that you would bless The reading and preaching of your word this evening, Father, we pray that we would uh, learn from your word by your spirit and that your word would dwell within us richly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So let's begin again with a little bit of review. Uh, David... King David is now at the height of his power. If you look forward in your scripture a little bit, if you go forward, we have chapter 10, some wars, some uh, defeats by uh, David against Aram and Ammon. And then in in chapter 11, there written large is David's sin with Bathsheba. And difficulties begin in his household. Um, and, and so this, this chapter and the eight, nine really are the height and the time, that time period is the height of King David's power, the height of his blessings, the height of, of God smoothing the path before him. 
Uh, think about it. His sons are his advisors, right? We learned that last time. His sons are his advisors. They're not yet his opponents. They will become his opponents. Um, his, the kingdom is unified. All the tribes are together uh, in one unified kingdom. That does not last very long. Um, <clears throat> a, few, um, a few decades forward, and the kingdom will not be unified And his enemies are subdued. Yes, there will be enemies that crop up from time to time, but chapter um, 8 was a list of all the the ways that David brought peace to the land. So this is is the height of his power. This this is, um, if he were an American president, this is the time period that he would want his books to be written about. Right? He had made it this far and things had gone well and everything was peaceful and the church was, the, the Israel was unified, the nation was unified and all of his sons surrounded him and helped him. Now, <clears throat> David's mind turns to the house of Saul. It's pretty extraordinary that at this point David is still concerning himself about the house of Saul. Um, one, he, he has a wife that comes from the house of Saul. Um, but two, he's, um, <clears throat> he's remembering things and promises and vows that he had made previously. So he's remembering promises that he made um, previously in, uh, in his life. We could go back to 2 Samuel 6.21 where David is speaking with Michael and his mind was on the house of Saul there but he does not have positive things to say about the house of Saul. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore I will celebrate before the Lord. Right, Speaking to Michael he says... Um, His mind is on Saul's kingdom, but Saul being rejected. And he asks the question, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? And then what are the last words of that phrase? Not in my Bible. For Jonathan's sake. Okay, for Jonathan's sake. So he's considering the house of Saul um, because he, he wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. That's the reason for his desire. Now, what do we know about the relationship between Jonathan and, and David? It was very close, right? It was very much a, um, a, a deeply, deeply wrought friendship uh, between men, but not just a friendship. It was more than a friendship. Remember when we went through those verses that talked about David and Jonathan, there is something going on there that's beyond friendship. There's political alliance. There's, there's the son of the king denying his own birthright and deferring to David as the new king. Right? So Jonathan is, is very much a man who was, who was willing to give up his rights for the sake of um, the Lord's work. And he did that. Now go back to 1 Samuel 20. Way back in 1 Samuel 20, David and Jonathan made a covenant. 
And part of that covenant was that David would care for the household of Jonathan. Right, so 1 Samuel 20.42, we read this. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. And he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. And so right there, there's a, a commitment Right? The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. They will have the Lord in common. And then earlier, 20 verse 15, this is Jonathan speaking to David. Well, let's go back to 12. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have, surrounded, when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to, make, to you Make it known to you, if it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Right? Well, that's what has happened. 2 Samuel 8 is an account of all the enemies of David being cut off from the face of the earth. And that's when David's mind goes to Jonathan's household. Right? And he remembers this promise here. He shall not cut off from your loving kindness, your mercy, from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off all of his enemies. Why would he put that? Not even when the Lord cuts off all your enemies? Well... When you have peace, um, you have a tendency to um, go different directions and remember your previous obligations and the promises that you made and be filled with arrogance and just rest in your peace. And yet here's David at the time when he's brought peace, remembering his promises before the Lord. So Jonathan has a son with a great name, Mephibosheth. Jonathan has this son, and we, we learn about Jonathan's son in this very strange passage in 2 Samuel 4. 2 Samuel 4 is all about Ishbosheth being murdered and really the end of Saul's household. And then verse 4 of chapter 4 seemingly has no connection at all. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old. When the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And then it moves on to other things. So this, this aside about the household of, of Jonathan here. And um, what do we learn there? We learn that he was five years old when, he, when the report of Jonathan and Saul's death came to him. So he was five years old when his, his dad and granddad died. Right, and, and his nurse took him up and in her haste tripped, fell, did something and um, busted his ankles, busted his legs, did something along those lines and he became crippled in both of his feet. They didn't have x-rays and 
surgery and the ability to set bones and things like that. So he suffered, the, um, suffered from this accident and became lame, um, became lame. We turn back to 2 Samuel 9, and we see this interaction between King David and Ziba. Ziba um, has answers to the king's inquiry, is there anyone of the house of Saul that I may show kind, the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both his feet. And so the king said, where is he? And Ziba said, behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of of Amiel and Lodabar. So King David sends for him, fetches him. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here's your servant. Why was Mephibosheth fearful? Well, it was common practice during those days and common practice since those days and common practice in many monarchies to to kill all the previous king's descendants once you ascended the throne. So Mephibosheth may have been fearful that that was going to be his fate. And um, that was not his fate. The first thing that David says to him in response is, do not fear. Do not fear. And then he invokes the name of his father. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I'm going to give back to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. So the very opposite of him destroying Mephibosheth. He's being invited right to the king's table. He's going to eat with the king regularly. He is, in a sense, going to become a son of David because the sons are the ones that would, would um, eat with David around his family. Mephibosheth would become to him a counselor. And then we, we see this response by Mephibosheth. He prostrated himself. What does it mean to prostrate yourself, kids? What does it mean to prostrate yourself? Do you know? Just curious. To bow down, yeah, to fall down, to be in a, in a, a posture of humility, right? And so he falls down before David. And he says this, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? If you saw my my Facebook feed yesterday, well, if you didn't, it's a very sad thing that you did not pay attention to my Facebook feed. I will hold that against you. Um, I quoted this passage and said, this is what every Christian should, should say before Christ. Right? This is what every Christian, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? I'm a dead dog. I am a good for nothing. Right? Um, in the day of self-esteem, in a day of, of, of thinking of being sure that you have positive thoughts about yourself in a day of narcissism and vanity, the, the worm theology that the Puritans were so um, helpful with is shunned. It's hated, right? To say that you're a worm, that you're worthless, that you're a sinner, that you 
are a dead dog is like the worst thing you could do to yourself. And that's such a false witness that you're being sold. It's, it, it, it is only right that before a holy God, sinful man, should fall down in a position uh, of humility and confess their sinfulness before the Lord. Right? Until we get to the point where we can do that, I am just a dead dog. Aside from Christ's work in me, there is nothing good. Nothing. Not a single thing. I am, I am um, you know, thoughts of Romans 3 should be filtering through our minds at this point, right? Um, Genesis 6, every intent of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil all the time. Right? And, and it is only the mercy of God that takes what is dead and that takes what is doggish and makes it good. And so Mephibosheth is showing real humility here. Humility is something that, um, that that is lacking. That is not just lacking today. I mean, everybody struggles with humility, but um, humility is almost seen as weakness. We have... We have social media so that we might boast continually. It's a boasting machine, right? And so it's, um, we, we have cultivated technologies. We have cultivated, um, we have cultivated uh, a whole culture that's based upon boast, boasting and not humility. We do not regard others as more important than ourselves. Are you kidding me? It's about the last thing that we do. We consider ourselves most important and others will have to fit into our schedule. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You're a dead dog. That's the appropriate level of sound judgment and thinking about yourself. Does that offend you? Or does that give you hope? Do you feel it in your bones that you're a dead dog? And does that make you cry out to the the Lord for mercy? That's the humility that Mephibosheth is showing right here. He is before the king. He is fearful of the king. The king can do whatever he wants with Mephibosheth. He could murder him. He could, he could consign him to um, a place far away. He could, he, could, um, he could ignore him. And yet he's telling him, don't be afraid. You're going to eat at my table. Which is which is what the Lord does for dead dogs, right? Psalm 23. Psalm 23, right? He spreads a table before us. We are, um, we are children of the Father. We are, we are despicable 
dead dogs of children that have been forgiven and drawn into the household of God and made beautiful because of, because of his loving kindness that's put upon us. Now, is it true that we should really think of ourselves as dead dogs? Should we have a negative assessment of ourselves? Is self, should we have the opposite of self-esteem as Christians? Well, Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 calls himself what? The chief of sinners. The foremost of sinners. Right? Is he just, is he just trying, is it false humility, you know, and he's just trying to, to outdo um, others with a false humility? Or do you think that Paul, the man who had that, had that thorn in the flesh that he pled with God to remove, but God did not remove it and said, my grace is sufficient. Do you think that Paul actually knew he was the chief of sinners? Right? Is that not the experience of all Christians, that you're the chief of sinners? You cannot imagine how somebody could be more sinful than yourself. You cannot imagine how somebody would be more, have more or have less control of his thoughts than you have control of your thoughts. What about the Pharisee and the publican in Luke, Luke 18? Love this passage. Luke 18 where that publican is, is on, he gets on um, Facebook. The Pharisee has Facebook back in the first century. And um, where is it? It's at uh, Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Right? This is what he wrote before he, he hit post. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Mephibosheth says he's a dead dog. He's right on. What about Paul in Philippians chapter 3? What does Paul say there? Paul gets his Facebook account up, right? But he, he, um, he suddenly turns it at the end. <clears throat> in Philippians 3, it says this, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Post. And then he follows it up with the next post. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. On the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Right? So all those things that He could boast in, all those things where He could say, no, I'm not a dead dog. I'm not bad. I am not half bad. In fact, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm above average. I have great heritage. I have great training. I, I hated the church. I kept the law. And then he says, but it's all rubbish. It's all scubalon. It's all crap. It is worthless. It is only good to be thrown out and trampled. And, and, then, uh, and so we got Paul, and Paul is a dead dog. He continually says, I'm the chief of sinners. Everything I accomplished in my life was worthless. It was rubbish. But then there's the example of Jesus, right? And you would think of of anybody who could properly and righteously boast, it would be the Son of God. But Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. All right, so the humble, and, and, and so the, he, he was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, right? Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The humble are self-deprecating. Think of Paul, think of the publican. The humble are self-deprecating. I'm a dead dog. The man who always boasts in himself, the man who always boasts in his heritage, the man who boasts in his work, in his triumphs, in his manliness, in his experience of the world, um, that's not humility. The humble man has a righteous view of himself, looks at himself and says, they're really is outside of God's work in me, there is no good thing. And that glorifies God. That glorifies God. That gives God all the credit for any good that's in you. That gives God all the credit, and it is a reasonable and right assessment of yourself. And so, (laughs) don't practice like, um, don't practice false separation self-deprecation, right? Don't just start insulting yourself without, you know, feeling it in your bones. Just read Scripture, and you will become self-deprecating. 
it will destroy you and you will have all kinds of the self-deprecation. You will have every reason to despise yourself that you can think of. And so just, just examine yourself. Just examine yourself by the, the light of Scripture. Um, the one who boasts in himself all the time is like Solomon before his repentance. They think there is something about success in this world. Right? Think, they think there's something substantive about success in the world. And then Solomon repents and he's like, no, 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 none of that. None of that was anything. Fear God and keep his commandments because that applies to all men. Fear God and keep his commandments, you dead dog. That's the summary of my sermon tonight. Fear God, keep his commandments, you're a dead dog. But we see in Mephibosheth, we see that wonderful humility, okay? Yes, he's fearful. But it is a, a glorious humility before the king. And so remember this. Remember this, this statement by Mephibosheth. When you, go to your, when you go in prayer and you bow in a, in a posture of humility before the Lord, maybe start it like this. What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? You're just about to speak to the Almighty God. And he's going to listen to you, right? He's going to listen to you, and maybe some humility would be um, proper at the outset. Okay, and then, and then from there, we learn about all that the king does. The king provides for, for Ziba and his household, and they are servants to Mephibosheth, and they have land. And even though they have land, um, he's still eating at the king's table. And Ziba says, we'll make this happen. Mephibosheth has a young son whose name is Micah. We don't know anything about his, his wife or uh, what the situation is with that. And, um, and he lived in Jerusalem. He ate at the king's table. And then it ends with, now he was lame in both feet. Dead dog. Lame. He's lame in both feet. That is the, I think it's a, that is a statement about the house of Saul and the end of the house of Saul, right? One man who's lame is the end of the house of Saul. But there's this whole, there's the whole, um, what we haven't talked about up to this point, and what I, another application I want to make of this is Jonathan, of David keeping his promises to Jonathan. David keeping his promises to Jonathan. What does Scripture say about the promises we make? What does Scripture say about the promises you make? It's 130, verse 5, I think. It's around there. Yeah, yeah, keep your promises even when it hurts. In the Psalms, some, maybe it's 132, something like that. What does Jesus say about your promises? Whoa. Do you understand the depth of that command? What that means is every promise you make to anybody is a solemn vow. Do you realize that? You know, the Pharisees wanted to go and say, look, I... I I'm, 
they had varying levels of vows you could make, right? You could vow by the gold of the temple, and that was a certain level. You could vow to God, and that was a higher level. You could, there were, there's this gradation, and, and Jesus comes along and says, no, if you've promised, you've made a solemn vow. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Oh, and that nails us, doesn't it? That nails us. Every yes and every no is a covenant with those you've made the promise to. And if you can't fulfill that promise, what are you supposed to do? Well, you can't just let it go and blow it off. You have to actually go to that person and admit that you can't fulfill your vow that you made to them. Right? But, but you, you, you have to keep your vows even when it hurts. And now let's talk about little things. You said you would take the trash out. Is that a... Is that a is that a promise? Is it a situation where Jesus' words, let your yes be yes and your no be no, apply? Yeah, it is. You've made that promise. You said you'd take the trash out. You know, and so it applies to little things, but bigger things too. You, you signed an agreement to pay back a debt. Pay it. Right? You... You took a job, fulfilled the, the, the promises you made in taking that job. Right? Whatever. There are all kinds of examples. There are, we could, each day, if we kept a list of the things where yes be yes and no be no applied, we would have a long list of things, right? Your wife tells you to do something and, and you say, yes, I'll, I'll get to that when I get home and da-da-da-da-da. And you hope she forgets about it so that you don't have to keep your vow. Right? Why obedience? Jesus said, let your less, yes be yes and your no be no. God is a God of truth. God never fails in his promises. God has never failed in one of the things he said yes to and in one of the things he said no to. He has never failed in it. And so here's David being being accountable, being gracious to Mephibosheth because on that battlefield, when Saul was after David, Jonathan and Saul said, Jonathan said to David, take care of my family. Let the Lord be between us, right? And bind us together and, and don't afflict my descendants. In fact, care for them. And this is the fulfillment of it. This is David going back and doing, um, doing what was right once there was peace in his land. And so be, be faithful with the yeses and noes you make. Right? Keep the vows that you make. Be a man or a woman of your word. Be a man or a woman of your word, like David was here. And be a humble man, like Mephibosheth was here. A dead dog. So what I'm telling you is, be a dead dog who keeps his promises. It's that simple. A dead dog. Jesus was despised, he was rejected, he was a man of sorrows, but always true, always faithful. He was... He, he became sin, and in that was fulfilling the vows that the promise, the, the covenant that he had made with his own father, right? 
And he fulfilled those promises even though he became the most vile, vile man that ever lived. Worse than a dead dog. He became all sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for an exhortation to be humble, an exhortation to be faithful. Father, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for the way that we have boasted about this and that, and we have wanted to exalt ourselves, and we had, we've wanted to know, we've wanted people to know only the excellent things about us, and half of which are even untrue. And Father, forgive us for all the times that we have been unfaithful, that we have let our yes be no and our no be yes. Father, when we haven't fulfilled promises we've made in elder board meetings, when we have not fulfilled promises that we made to our children, So, Father, we do pray that our yes would be yes and our no would be no, that we would be faithful, that we would be men and women of our word to your glory and as a witness to your faithfulness and as a witness to your glory. Help us in this by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.